7. Is still of importance. The lime clays or marls of class 2, which contain essentially a high percentage of chalk or limestone, are not so widely distributed as the ordinary brick clays, and in England the natural deposits of these clays have been largely exhausted. A very fine chalk clay, or malm, as it was locally called, was formerly obtained from the alluvium in the vicinity of London, but the available supply of this has been used up, and at the present time an artificial malm is prepared by mixing an ordinary brick clay with ground chalk. For the best London-facing bricks the clay and chalk are mixed in water. The chalk is ground on grinding pans, and the clay is mixed with water and worked about until the mixture has the consistence of cream. The mixture of these pulps is run through a grating or coarse sieve onto a drying kiln or bed, where it is allowed to stand until stiff enough to walk on. A layer of fine ashes is then spread over the clay, and the mass is turned over and mixed by spade, and tempered by the addition of water. In other districts, where clays containing limestone are used, the marl is mixed with water on a wash pan and the resulting creamy fluid passed through coarse sieves onto a drying bed, if necessary. Coarse sand is added to the clay in the wash pan, and such addition is often advisable because the washed clays are generally very fine in grain. Another method of treating these marls, when they are in the plastic condition, is to squeeze them by machinery through iron gratings, which arrest and remove the pedals. In other cases the marl is passed through a grinding mill having a solid bottom and heavy iron rollers, by which means the limestone pedals are crushed sufficiently and mixed through the whole mass. The removal of limestone pedals from the clay is of great importance, as during the firing they would be converted into quicklime, which has a tendency to shatter the brick on exposure to the weather. As before stated, these marls which usually contain from 15 to 30 of calcium carbonate burn to a yellow color which is quite distinctive, although in some cases, where the percentage of limestone is very high, over 40, the color is gray or a very pale buff. The action of lime in bleaching the ferric oxide and producing a yellow instead of a red brick, has not been thoroughly investigated, but it seems probable that some compound is produced, between the lime and the oxide of iron, or between these two oxides and the free silica, entirely different from that produced by oxide of iron in the absence of lime. Such marls require a harder fire than the ordinary brick clays in order to bring about the reaction between the lime and the other ingredients. Magnesium may replace lime to some extent in such marls, but the firing temperature must be higher when magnesia is present. Marls usually contract very little, if at all, in the burning, and generally produce a strong, square brick of fine texture and good color. When underfired, marl bricks are very liable to disintegrate under the action of the weather, and great care must be exercised in burning them at a sufficiently high temperature. Brick making. Bricks made of tempered clay may be made by hand or by machine, and the machines may be worked by hand or by mechanical power. Bricks made of semi-plastic clay i.e. ground clay or shale sufficiently damp to adhere under pressure are generally machine made throughout. The method of making bricks by hand is the same, with slight variation, the world over. The tempered clay is pressed by hand into a wooden or metal mold or four-sided case without top or bottom which is of the desired shape and size. Allowance being made for the shrinkage of the brick in drying and firing, the molder stands at the bench or table, dips the mold in water, or water and then sand, to prevent the clay from sticking, takes a rudely shaped piece of clay from an assistant, and dashes this into the mold which rests on the molding bench, he then presses the clay into the corners of the mold with his fingers, scrapes off any surplus clay and levels the top by means of a strip of wood called a strike, 
and then turns the brick out of the mold onto a board, to be carried away by another assistant to the drying ground. The mold may be placed on a special piece of wood, called the stock board, provided with an elevated tongue of wood in the center, which produces the hollow or frog in the bottom of the brick. Machine-made bricks may be divided into two kinds, plastic and semi-plastic, although the same type of machine is often used for both kinds. The machine-made plastic bricks are made of tempered clay, but generally the tempering and working of the clay are affected by the use of machinery, especially when the harder clays and shales are used. The machines used in the preparation of such clays are grinding mills and pub mills. The grinding mills are either a series of rollers with graduated spaces between, through which the clay or shale is passed, or are of the ordinary mortar pen type having a solid or perforated iron bottom on which the clay or shale is crushed by heavy rollers. Shales are sometimes passed through a grinding mill before they are exposed to the action of the weather, as the disintegration of the hard lumps of shale greatly accelerates the weathering. In the case of ordinary brick clay, in the plastic condition, grinding mills are only used when pebbles more than a quarter of an inch in diameter are present, as otherwise the clay may be passed directly through the pub mill a process which may be repeated if necessary. The pub mill consists of a box or trough having a feed hole at one end and a delivery hole or nose at the other end, and provided with a central shaft which carries knives and cutters so arranged that when the shaft revolves they cut and knead the clay, and at the same time force it towards and through the delivery nose. The cross-section of this nose of the pub mill is approximately the same as that of the required brick 9 inches x 41 2 inches plus contraction. For ordinary bricks, so that the pump delivers a solid or continuous mass of clay from which bricks may be made by merely making a series of square cuts at the proper distances apart. In practice, the clay is pushed from the pump along a smooth iron plate, which is provided with a wire cutting frame having a number of tightly stretched wires placed at certain distances apart, arranged so that they can be brought down upon, and through, the clay, and so many bricks cut off at intervals. The frame is sometimes in the form of a skeleton cylinder. The wires being arranged radially or the wires may be replaced by metal discs, but in all cases bricks thus made are known as wire cuts. In order to obtain a better shaped and more compact brick, these wire cuts may be placed under a brick press and they're squeezed into iron molds under great pressure. These two processes are now generally performed by one machine, consisting of pug mill and brick press combined. The pug delivers the clay, downwards, into the mold, the proper amount of clay is cut off and the mold is made to travel into position under the ram of the press, which squeezes the clay into a solid mass. There are many forms of brick press, a few for hand power, but the most adapted for belt driving, although in recent years hydraulic presses have come more and more into use, especially in Germany and America. The essential parts of a brick press are, one a box or frame in which the clay is molded, to a plunger or die carried on the end of a ram, which gives the necessary pressure, Three an arrangement for pushing the pressed brick out of the molding box. Such presses are generally made of iron throughout, although other metals are used, occasionally, for the molds and dies. The greatest variations found in brick presses are in the means adopted for actuating the rem, and many ingenious mechanical devices have been applied to this end, each claiming some particular advantage over its predecessors. In many recent presses, especially where semi-plastic clay is used, the brick is pressed simultaneously from top and bottom, a second ram, working upwards from beneath, giving the additional pressure, although the best bricks are still pressed from tempered or plastic clay, 
There has recently been a great development in the manufacture of semi-plastic or dust-made bricks, especially in those districts where shales are used for brick making. These semi-plastic bricks are stamped out of ground shale that has been sufficiently moistened with water to enable it to bind together. The hard clay, or shale, is crushed under heavy rollers in an iron grinding pan having a perforated bottom through which the crushed clay passes, when sufficiently fine, into a small compartment underneath. This clay powder is then delivered, by an elevator, into a sieve or screen, which retains the coarser particles for regrinding. Sets of rollers may also be used for crushing shales that are only moderately hard, the ground material being sifted as before. The material, as fed V.04P.0520 into the mold of the press, is a coarse, damp powder which becomes adhesive under pressure, producing a so-called, semi-plastic, brick. The presses used are similar to those employed for plastic clay, but they are generally more strongly and heavily built, and are capable of applying a greater pressure. The semi-plastic method has many advantages where shales are used, although the bricks are not as strong nor as perfect as the best, plastic, bricks. The method, however, enables the brickmaker to make use of certain kinds of clay rock, or shale, that would be impracticable for plastic bricks, and the weathering tempering and aging may be largely or entirely dispensed with. The plant required is heavier and more costly, but the brickyard becomes more compact, and the processes are simpler than with the plastic method. The drying of bricks, which was formerly done in the open, is now, in most cases, conducted in a special shed heated by flues along which the heated gases from the kilns pass on their way to the chimney. It is important that the atmosphere of the drying shed should be fairly dry to which end suitable means of ventilation must be arranged by fans or otherwise. If the atmosphere is too moist the surface of the brick remains damp for a considerable time, and the moisture from the interior passes to the surface as water, carrying with it the soluble salts, which are deposited on the surface as the water slowly evaporates. This deposit produces the scum already referred to. When the drying is done in a dry atmosphere the surface quickly dries and hardens and the moisture from the interior passes to the surface as vapor, the soluble salts being left distributed through the whole mass, and consequently no scum is produced. Plastic bricks take much longer to dry than semi-plastic, they shrink more and have a greater tendency to a warp or twist. The burning or firing of bricks is the most important factor in their production, for their strength and durability depend very largely on the character and degree of the firing to which they have been subjected. The action of the heat brings about certain chemical decompositions and recombinations which entirely alter the physical character of the dry clay. It is important, therefore, that the firing should be carefully conducted and that it should be under proper control. For ordinary bricks the firing atmosphere should be oxidizing, and the finishing temperature should be adjusted to the nature of the clay. The object being to produce a hard strong brick, of good shape, that will not be too porous and will withstand the action of frost. The finishing temperature ranges from 900 degrees C to 1250 degrees C the usual temperature being about 1050 degrees C for ordinary bricks. As before mentioned, lime clays require a higher firing temperature usually about 1150 degrees C to 1200 degrees C in order to bring the lime into chemical combination with the other substances present. It is evident that the best method of firing bricks is to place them in permanent kilns but although such kilns were used by the Romans some 2,000 years ago, the older method of firing in clamps is still employed in the smaller brick fields. In every country where bricks are made, 
These clamps are formed by arranging the unfeared bricks in a series of rows or walls, placed fairly closely together, so as to form a rectangular stack. A certain number of channels, or fire removes, are formed in the bottom of the clamp, and fine coal is spread in horizontal layers between the bricks during the building up of the stack. Fires are kindled in the fire mouths, and the clamp is allowed to go on burning until the fuel is consumed throughout. The clamp is then allowed to cool, after which it is taken down, and the bricks sorted, those that are under fire being built up again in the next clamp for refeeding. Sometimes the clamp takes the form of a temporary kiln, the outside being built of burnt bricks which are plastered over with clay, and the fire mounts being larger and more carefully formed. There are many other local modifications in the manner of building up the clamps, all with the object of producing a large percentage of well-fired bricks. Clamp firing is slow, and also uneconomical, because irregular and not sufficiently under control, and it is now only employed where bricks are made on a small scale. Brick kilns are of many forms, but they can all be grouped under two main types intermittent kilns and continuous kilns. The intermittent kiln is usually circular in plan being in the form of a vertical cylinder with a dome top. It consists of a single firing chamber in which the unfeared bricks are placed, and in the walls of which are contrived a number of fire mouths where wood or coal is burned. In the older forms known as updraft kilns, the products of combustion pass from the fire mouth, through flues, into the bottom of the firing chamber, and thence directly upwards and out at the top. The modern plan is to introduce the products of combustion near the top, or crown, of the kiln and to draw them downwards through holes in the bottom which lead to flues connected with an independent chimney. These downdraft kilns have short chimneys or bags built round the inside wall in connection with the fire mouths, which conduct the flames to the upper part of the firing chamber, where they are reverberated and passed down through the bricks in obedience to the pull of the chimney. The bags may be joined together, forming an inner circular wall entirely round the firing chamber, except at the doorway and a number of kilns may be built in a row or group having their bottom flues connected with the same tall chimney. Downdraft kilns usually give a more regular fire and a higher percentage of well-fired bricks, and they are more economical in fuel consumption than updraft kilns, while the hot gases, as they pass from the kiln, may be utilized for drying purposes, being conducted through flues under the floor of the drying shed, on their way to the chimney. The method of using one tall chimney to a work a group of downdraft kilns naturally led to the invention of the continuous kiln, which is really made up of a number of separate kilns or firing chambers, built in series and connected up to the main flue of the chimney in such a manner that the products of combustion from one kiln may be made to pass through a number of other kilns before entering the flue. The earliest form of continuous kiln was invented by Friedrich Hoffmann, and all kilns of this type are built on the Hoffmann principle. Although there are a great number of modifications of the original Hoffman construction, the great principle of continuous firing is the utilization of the waste heat from one kiln or section of a kiln in heating up another kiln or section, direct firing being applied only to finish the burning. In practice a number of kilns or firing chambers, usually rectangular in plan, are built side by side into parallel lines, which are connected at the ends by other kilns so as to make a complete circuit. The original form of the complete series was elliptical in plan, but the tendency in recent years has been to flatten the sides of the ellipse and bring them together, thus giving two parallel rows joined at the ends by a chamber or passage at right angles. Coal or gas is burnt in the chamber or section that is being fired up, the air necessary for the combustion being heated on its passage through the kilns that are cooling down, 
and the products of combustion, before entering the chimney flue, are drawn through a number of other kilns or chambers containing enfeared bricks, which are thus gradually heated up by the otherwise waste heat from the sections being fired. Continuous kilns produce a more evenly fired product than the intermittent kilns usually do, and, of course, at much less cost for fuel. Gas firing is now being extensively applied to continuous kilns, natural gas in some instances being used in the United States of America, and the methods of construction and of firing are carried out with greater care and intelligence, the prime objects being economy of fuel and perfect control of firing. Pyrometers are coming into use for the control of the firing temperature, with the result that a constant and trustworthy product is turn put. The introduction of machinery greatly helped the brick-making industry in opening up new sources of supply of raw material in the shales and hardened clays of the sedimentary deposits of the older geologic formations, and, with the extended use of continuous firing plants, it has led to the establishment of large concerns where everything is company-ordinate for the production of enormous quantities of bricks at a minimum cost, in the United Kingdom, and still more in Germany and the United States of America great improvements have been made in machinery, firing plant and organization, so that the whole manufacture is now being conducted on more scientific lines, to the great advantage of the industry, blue brick is a very strong vitreous brick of dark, slaty blue color, used in engineering works where great strength or impermeability is desirable, these bricks are made of clay containing front 7 to 10 of oxide of iron, and their manufacture is carried out in the ordinary way until the later stages of the firing process, when they are subjected to the strongly reducing action of a smoky atmosphere, which is produced by throwing small bituminous coal upon the fire mounts and damping down the admission of air. The smoke thus produced reduces the red ferric oxide to blue-green ferrous oxide, or to metallic iron, which combines with the silica present to form a fusible ferrous silicate. This fusible, slag, partly combines with the other silicates present, and partly fills up the pores, and so produces a vitreous impermeable layer varying in thickness according to the duration and character of the smoking, the finishing temperature of the kiln and the texture of the brick. Particles of carbon penetrate the surface during the early stages of the smoking, and a small quantity of carbon probably enters into combination, tending to produce a harder surface and darker color. Floating bricks were first mentioned by Strabo, the Greek geographer, and afterwards by Pliny as being made at Petain in the Trode. The secret of their manufacture was lost for many centuries, but was rediscovered in 1791 by Fabroni, an Italian, who made them from the fossil meal diatomaceous surf found in Tuscany. These bricks are very light, fairly strong, and being poor conductors of heat, have been employed for the construction of powder magazines on board ship, and sea. Mortar bricks belong to the class of invert bricks, and are, strictly speaking, blocks of artificial stone made in brick molds. These bricks have been made for many years by molding a mixture of sand and slate lime and allowing the blocks thus made to harden in the air. This hardening is brought about partly by evaporation of the water, but chiefly by the conversion of the calcium hydrate, or slate lime, into calcium carbonate by the action of the carbonic acid in the atmosphere. A small proportion of the lime enters into combination with the silica and water present to form hydrated calcium silicate, and probably a little hydrated basic carbonate of lime is also formed, both of which substances are in the nature of cement. This process of natural hardening by exposure to the air was a very long one, occupying from 6 to 18 months, 
and many improvements were introduced during the latter half of the 19th century to improve the strength of the bricks and to hasten the hardening. V.04P.05 to 1 mixtures of sand, lime and cement and of certain ground blast furnace slags and lime were introduced, the molding was done under hydraulic presses and the bricks afterwards treated with carbon dioxide under pressure, with or without the application of mild heat. Some of these mixtures and methods are still in use, but a new type of mortar brick has come into use during recent years which has practically superseded the old mortar brick. Sand Lime Bricks In the early 80s of the 19th century, Dr. Michaelis of Berlin patented a new process for hardening blocks made of a mixture of sand and lime by treating them with high-pressure steam for a few hours, and the so-called sand lime bricks are now made on a very extensive scale in many countries. There are many differences of detail in the manufacture, but the general method is in all cases the same. Dry sand is intimately mixed with about one-tenth of its weight of powdered slaked lime. The mixture is then slightly moistened with water and afterwards molded into bricks under powerful presses, capable of exerting a pressure of about 60 tons per square in. After removal from the press the bricks are immediately placed in huge steel cylinders usually 60 to 80 feet long and about 7 feet in diameter and are there subjected to the action of high-pressure steam 120 pounds to 150 pounds per square inches for from 10 to 15 hours. The proportion of slaked lime to sand varies according to the nature of the lime and the purity and character of the sand, one of lime to 10 of sand being a fair average. The following is an analysis of a typical German sand lime brick, silica CO2, 84, lime cow, 7, alumina and oxide of iron, 2, water, Magnesia and alkalis. 7. Under the action of the high-pressure steam the lime attacks the particles of sand, and a chemical compound of water, lime and silica is produced which forms a strong bond between the larger particles of sand. This bond of hydrated calcium silicate is evidently different from, and of better type than, the filling of calcium carbonate produced in the mortar brick, and the sand lime brick is consequently much stronger than the ordinary mortar brick. However the latter may be made. The sand lime brick is simple in manufacture, and with reasonable care is of constant quality. It is usually of a light gray color, but may be stained by the addition of suitable coloring oxides or pigments and affected by lime and the conditions of manufacture. Strength of brick. The following figures indicate the crushing load for bricks of various types in tons per square inches, common hand made from 0.4 to 0.9, machine made, 0.9, 1.2 London stock, 0.7, 1.3 Staffordshire blue, 2.8, 3.3 sand lime, 2.9, 3.4 C. Also brickwork. JB, WB the term, marl, has been wrongly applied to many fire clays. It should be restricted to natural mixtures of clay and chalk such as those of the Paris and London basins. B-R-I-C-K-F-I-E-L-D-E-R. A term used in Australia for a hot scorching wind blowing from the interior, where the sandy wastes, bare of vegetation in summer, are intensely heated by the sun. This hot wind blows strongly, often for several days at a time, defying all attempts to keep the dust down, and parching all vegetation. It is in one sense a healthy wind, as being exceedingly dry and hot, it destroys many injurious germs of disease. The northern brickfielder is almost invariably followed by a strong, southerly buster, cloudy and cool from the ocean. The two winds are due to the same cause, viz. a cyclonic system over the Australian Bight. These systems frequently extend inland as a narrow V-shaped depression the apex northward, bringing the winds from the north on their eastern sides and from the south on their western. 
Hence as the narrow system passes eastward the wind suddenly changes from north to south, and the thermometer has been known to fall 15 degrees in 20 minutes. Brickwork. In building, the term applied to constructions made of bricks. The tools and implements employed by the bricklayer are, the trowel for spreading the mortar, the plumb rule to keep the work perpendicular, or in the case of an inclined or battering wall, to a regular batter, for the plumb rule may be made to suit any required inclination, the spirit level to keep the work horizontal, often used in conjunction with a straight edge in order to test a greater length, and the gauge rod with the brick courses marked on it. The coins or angles are first built up with the aid of the gauge rod, and the intermediate work is kept regular by means of the line and line pins fixed in the joints. The raker, jointer, pwanding rule and Frenchman are used in pwanding joints, the pwanding staff being held on a small board called the hawk. For roughly cutting bricks the large trowel is used, for neater work such as facings, the bolster and club hammer, the cold chisel is for general cutting away, and for chases and holes, when bricks require to be cut, the work is set out with the square, bevel and compasses, if the brick to be shaped is a hard one it is placed on a V-shaped cutting block, an incision made where desired with the tin saw, and after the bolster and club hammer have removed the portion of the brick, the scutch, really a small axe, is used to hack off the rough parts, for cutting soft bricks, such as rubbers and mounds, a frame saw with a blade of soft iron wire is used, and the face is brought to a true surface on the rubbing stone, a slab of Yorkshire stone, in ordinary practice a scaffold is carried up with the walls and made to rest on them, having built up as high as he can reach from the ground, the scaffolder erects a scaffold with standards, ledgers and put logs to carry the scaffold boards see scaffold, scaffolding, bricks are carried to the scaffold on a hod which holds 20 bricks, or they may be hoisted in baskets or boxes by means of a pulley and fall, or may be raised in larger numbers by a crane. The mortar is taken up in a hot or hoisted in pails and deposited on ledged boards about three feet square, placed on the scaffold at convenient distances apart along the line of work. The bricks are piled on the scaffold between the mortar boards, leaving a clear way against the wall for the bricklayers to move along. The workman, beginning at the extreme left of his section, or at a climb, advances to the right carefully keeping to his line and frequently testing his work with the plumb rule, spirit level and straight edge, until he reaches another angle, or the end of his section, the pwanding is sometimes finished off as the work proceeds, but in other cases the joints are left open until the completion, when the work is pwanked down, perhaps in a different mortar, when the wall has reached a height from the scaffold beyond which the workman cannot conveniently reach. The scaffolding is raised and the work continued in this manner from the new level. It is most important that the brickwork be kept perfectly plumb, and that every course be perfectly horizontal or level, both longitudinally and transversely. Strictest attention should be paid to the leveling of the lowest course of footings of the wall, for any irregularity will necessitate the inequality being made up with mortar in the courses above, thus inducing a liability for the wall to settle unequally, and so perpetuate the infirmity. To save the trouble of keeping the plumb rule and level constantly in his hands and yet ensure correct work, the bricklayer, on clearing the footings of the wall, builds up six or eight courses of bricks at the external angle C figure 1, which he carefully plumbs and levels across. These form a gauge for the intervening work, a line being tightly strained between and fixed with steel pins to each angle at a level with the top of the next course to be laid, and with this he makes his work range, if, however, the length between the coins be great, the line will of course sag, 
and it must, therefore, be carefully supported at intervals to the proper level. Care must be taken to keep the perpens, or vertical joints, one immediately over the other, having been carried up three or four courses to a level with the guidance of the line which is raised course by course. The work should be proved with the level and plumb rule, particularly with the latter at the quimes and reveals, as well as over the face. A smart tap with the end of the handle of the trowel will suffice to make a brick yield what little it may be out of truth, while the work is green, and not injured. The work of an efficient craftsman, however, will need but little adjustment, for every wall of more than one brick nine in thick, two men should be employed at the same time, one on the outside and the V.04P.05 to two other inside, one man cannot do justice from one side to even a 14 inches wall. When the wall can be approached from one side only, the work is said to be executed overhand, in work circular on plan, besides the level and plumb rule, a gauge mold or template, or arranging trammel or rod working on a pivot at the center of the curve, and in length equaling the radius must be used for every course, as it is evident that the line and pins cannot be applied to this in the manner just described. Bricks should not be merely laid, but each should be placed frog upwards and rubbed and pressed firmly down in such a manner as to secure absolute adhesion, and force the mortar into joints. Every brick should be well wetted before it is laid, especially in hot dry weather, in order to wash off the dust from its surface, and to obtain more complete adhesion, and prevent it from absorbing water from the mortar in which it is bedded. The bricks are wetted either by the bricklayer dipping them in water as he uses them, or by water being thrown or sprinkled on them as they lie piled on the scaffold. In bricklaying with quick-setting cements an ample use of water is of even more importance. All the walls of a building that are to sustain the same floors and the same roof, should be carried up simultaneously, in no circumstances should more be done in one part than can be reached from the same scaffold, until all the walls are brought up to the same height, where it is necessary for any reason to leave a portion of the wall at a certain L.